Tis a very specific season. It's the holidays and you're at home. What movies are you using to feel better this season? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and tonight, the night that we record this, I watched with my two children the climax of Home Alone, and both of them saw it for the first time and cackled and like leapt off the couch with excitement. And it might be bad that they are laughing at the injury of people. Well, uh, but the climax of Home Alone being the part just where he hurts. Yeah, others. no, we've been watching it in segments going up to tonight, and tonight was when we got to like the big reveal of like all the things falling down. Uh, and we had a great time, and that made me feel better this holiday season. That's scary. <laughs> I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to watch something that would probably be better for, for Katie's children, which is A Muppet Family Christmas, the Christmas TV special that combines the Muppets, the Sesame Streets, and the Fraggles all in one special. It can never air again because of legal issues with the rights, um, but it is all on YouTube, and it is the actual joy. It is all joy. Hey, it's me, Dave of the Seven, and Elf came out my first winter in New York and is now apparently a Christmas classic, but it's just personal nostalgia for me. Uh, And I'm David Ehrlich. I have no idea what I'm going to be watching, but the movie that in recent years I've tended to associate with Christmas is especially fresh in my mind because Cameron Bailey of TIFF was recently tweeting about how it is a Christmas movie uh, is um, Catch Me If You Can. I really Which, thought it was going to be Carol. Really thought you were going to say Carol. No, I mean, Ca- I mean, my Eyes Wide Shut is my go-to Christmas movie. Carol, also up there, but I don't specifically associate with Christmas, even though it is very much a Christmas movie. But when Catch Me If You Can came out, it was the day that it came out, Christmas of, I guess, 2005, 6, 3, 4? No, earlier than that, like 1. What? No, it's Catch huh? Me uh, 2, 2002. Uh, we the only year we didn't. <laughs> we say, named all the possible numbers. It was a massive blizzard, and I just remember like hoofing it through the snow to the movie theater through like an absolute tundra in Connecticut, only for the theater to quite obviously, in retrospect, be closed. And I ended up seeing the movie in Manhattan uh, a couple of days later. But and then there's a great Definitely scene at the Christmas. end. It's I mean it's very much a Christmas movie. And well, here's my here's my new through. theory. I was thinking about this because I've been listening to Frosty a lot at home with my two year old and. Frosty, Frosty Weintraub of Collider.com? Uh, no. Frosty <laughs> the Snowman. He uh, says, catch me if you can to all the children. I see. And it made me wonder if, it, if Frank Abernale Jr. named his memoir that after Frosty the Snowman because he loves Christmas so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, fan theory. But it's just that that uh, the scene where Frank comes home and is pressing himself up against the window and his mom is dancing with her new husband inside and then the police come and get a medal has as a, as a Jew who's always on the outside of Christmas looking in, that resonates very strongly with me. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. It's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 330. It is Pandemic 41. And it is the week of Wednesday, December 23rd, 2020. That's the day that in 1997, as good as it gets, starring Jack Nicholson. And Dave, you wrote it as Holly Hunt, who isn't a person. It's Helen Hunt. Oh. And not Holly Hunter. Yeah, Holly Hunt. I mean, there probably is a Holly Hunt out there who like got a SAG card and like regrets being trapped between the name of two more famous women. That's true. Uh, is it as good as it gets a Christmas movie? Does it open on December 23rd? You can 
Uh, that's a good question, but it doesn't it take place in a warm location, so you wouldn't be able to tell. It, it does. That kind that's, of has a summary that's my vibe. Response, yeah. You can't no, it takes place in New York. Set, you know. As good as it gets is in New York. What are we talking yeah, about? But, but New York does uh, have hot stretches. <laughs> Fair I thought you were talking <laughs> about it being like set in like Cabo or something. I guess I thought it was like Florida. But What's I crazy remember. is I was just thinking about Titanic, which is my Christmas movie, and opened oh, sure. on December 19th, and as good as it gets opened four days later, uh, but Titanic had the Friday, so I guess it's because it was like a pre-Christmas thing. Does Titanic take place over Christmas? It wasn't <laughs> a Christmas. April, <laughs> April 15th, 1912 is the day the Titanic sang. Yes, uh, yes. But no, it's like, it's it's the movie. It opened right before so it's Christmas. it's an Easter movie. Yeah. Yeah, kind of, sort of. Uh, it opened right before Christmas, and my family watches it on Christmas because of the year that we spent watching Titanic, like, all the time. Remember, I mean, maybe they still do this, where they had the live tweet-along of the sinking of the Titanic on April 14th. You know, based on uh, like keeping in real time what was happening on the ship, I just found that so deeply morbid. In oh, a way I, that yeah, I followed it the though. movie. Doesn't strike me as morbid at all. Um, the movie's a little morbid. I mean, yeah, but it, it, that's not the feeling that I take away from it. But that that Twitter concept just felt to me like an exercise in morbidity. They reminded me um, that real people died on that boat, David. David, just yeah, it's a memorial. Never, to never forget like going to the nine eleven museum, but on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> that's where the 9-11 museum has moved in, uh, since the pandemic okay david do we have any reviews i don't actually yeah. know the answer we do uh we do uh lore D D, which feels like it could be pat one of patches alts now that we know that patches is uh cooking from the D D cookbook it's the author's uh, cookbook actually yeah says uh more input from other hosts Great content and takes on movies, but I wish Katie had more of a voice. Is Dave Ehrlich the official quarterback of the show? I've only listened to two episodes, and I feel like it's mostly him talking the entire time. Well, Whoa. that'll probably bear out over the other few hundred episodes. But good news, <laughs> Lord D&D. I have made a solemn vow of silence for 2021, uh, and I'm going to be replaced in this podcast by my 13-month-year-old. 13-month-year-old? 13-month-old son, uh, whose film takes, I promise you, are just as coherent as mine. Yeah. So you can look forward to that. Uh, Wolf and Tip says, this podcast manks my day. Mm. I, am ash- hey. Mank. I am ashamed to say I have been a longtime listener. <laughs> Full stop. Wow. <laughs> no, I am, ash- <laughs> I am ashamed to say I have been a longtime listener, but this is my first review. Oh. But with 2020 coming to an end, I felt it was finally time to install iTunes. You all talked about last week what was some of the good that came out of 2020, and my entry is you guys. Oh, that's deeply mm. sad for you. Even though you've all been doing this for years, your amazing discussions and content each week has kept me sane during these insane times. Thank you so much for all that you guys do, making sure your listeners have only the best movies, TV, or video games, or whatever Matt Patches recommends to entertain themselves forevermore. Hope you all have a great holiday season, and looking forward to hearing more from Fighting in the War Room in the future. Well, thank you so much, Wolf and Tip, and to you, Lord D&D. Your reviews are much appreciated. If you're listening out there and you haven't left us a review, go on iTunes. Drop us uh, drop us some knowledge. We'd love to hear it. We'll read it live on the show. It's what we get instead of money. Yeah. We'll take it. Um, that was our... I, I, sorry, just to wrap up the segment. I'm seeing now that Wolf and Tip's review was our 700th. Whoa. Hey. That is impressive. I mean, for a podcast as shitty as this one, yeah. But I think, I think uh, that's mostly um, that mostly speaks to our uh, perseverance, our endurance, which is remarkable, and I think uh, our podcast best quality. So, um, 
Ehrlich gets us all in the huddle, and he's like, all right, it's fourth and long, <laughs> and you're all pieces of shit. I can't believe 700 people are watching this. You, you can't even come up with, like, a hockey equivalent, please. I don't. I barely know what fourth and long means. Is there not a huddle? They said quarterback. I was referring to the review. That's, that's true. That's true. You're, you're, this is exactly why I should be uh, muted as much as possible. All right. Thank you for leaving the review. Let's all go on with the show. Um, I've been nominated as someone who works at Polygon, which has a game, video game theme. You are factually <laughs> someone who works at Polygon. The, the... That's true. I do work there. That is <laughs> without a doubt. Um, I'm in the orbit of people who talk about video games a lot, which means we've been talking at Polygon a lot about Cyberpunk 2077, the latest title from CD Projekt Red, the makers of The Witcher games, which are fantastic not related um, to the show or or related to the oh, show very much related to absolutely the show. related to the show well uh i would ask for that with saying that no it's not related to the show it's both connected to the same books well they exist the, the, the video games existed the before the show i learned that much that's like, but like the, the that's show the, is based the on the same related the show is not adapting but the show is not no the show is but not you adapting. are related to okay it's a like a sibling. cousin it's a cousin it's a cousin yeah they are adapted from the same. They're adapted from the same source material. That's right. Okay, Let's which would make it a sibling. But go on. Clear. Okay, we're related. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with you. Anyway, we're talking about CD Projekt Red's new video game, Cyberpunk 27, 2077, and we're talking about it because it's having a meltdown in public in a way that I don't know if anyone. And we'll, we'll get into this. <laughs> if there is anything in our world, in the movie and TV world that has ever quite had this experience. Um, video games come out all the time broken and uh, get things called day one patches where, hey, not related to me. Not related. Wait, oh, that'd be so... When when Eleanor was born, you definitely should have posted a photo of her that said day, day one, one patch. Day one patch. <laughs> Damn. Next, next, next game. Um, next game. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of broken video games and they get repaired quickly because going into the release people know that they are going to be broken and there are also video games that remain broken for a long time and are slowly just patched together to be functional and because of release dates and because of capitalism and because of crunch time the like humans can only work so much um these video games come out this way and i think people expected CD Projekt Red's game to face these challenges because it was delayed several times, both due to COVID, both due to the, the, the experience of trying to get it done on time. There was very well-reported instances of, of crunch, as we say, in the video game world, where people are just hustling to meet the demanding schedule. To get this game out on time, it's probably the most highly anticipated game of the year. It's a big first-person RPG set in a in a you know cyberpunk sci-fi world um, where you get to shoot people. And Keanu Reeves is there. He's been the face of the game. Keanu Reeves plays effectively a tumor in your head. Like he is, he is the the tumor. Uh, yeah, I mean that's I could go I could go into detail and semantics as to what his character is and how he got there and the relationship with the player. But that is uh, effectively the nature of their relationship. 
Yeah, and we're not going to get in the weeds talking about the plot of Cyberpunk or even the gameplay of Cyberpunk. We're going to talk about what Cyberpunk is facing uh, culturally right now, which is being so broken um, that at first it seemed like it was just glitches. At first it was like cars are floating in the air and things are exploding and uh, the, the customizable tool to create your character where you can give your character any genitalia they want penises are just exploding out of people's pants in this game and being very uncomfortable. Listen, if it's in the game, it's in the game. It is, yeah. And everything that could go wrong seems to be going wrong with Cyberpunk 2077 to the point that um, no patch seems to be able to fix it in the immediate and PlayStation and Xbox are offering refunds for this game and now rumors are coming in the GameStop like People are just saying, we're going to give you back your money because this game is not ready. And there's already hints that there could be a class action lawsuit against CD Projekt Red because of how fucked this game is. Um, and trying to sell it to people at this stage was was looking incomprehensible. Well, I, I, just to yeah. point of clarification, the game, the those initial reports of bugs came from critics who were playing the game on the PC, which was the only... The only system which and they uh, only allowed people to review it, yeah, right. We're we're on the PC because the the console games. I was you know in the queue to get one for the PS5, yeah, you know, PS4 version that is upscaled on your PS5. The actual next gen versions are not going to come out until next year. Um, But once people got their hands on the console editions of the game, that's really when shit broke loose, hit the fan, whatever the expression is, um, because on the PS5, which is what I've been playing on, the game looks like a top-end PS4 game. It plays at a smooth frame rate. It just does this really fun thing where it crashes literally every time you go to a new area. Um, which, and and the, most, the most sadistic part about that is that I actually have gotten far enough in the game where I've started to have something that vaguely resembles fun playing it, which only, like, the, the impulse is not to just you know, turn the TV off and, and go back to Hades or whatever else, but um, to, to try and replay that same mission in the hope that I can drive my bike into uh, the Chinatown of Night City and the game won't crash. Um, but And then, you know, you get to the, the base models of the previous generation systems, the PS4, the Xbox, I guess I get confused with the Xbox uh, games, but uh, I'm a PlayStation man, but the older Xbox. And I mean, it, it truly, uh, the game barely runs. I mean, it, it looks atrocious. It's horrendously derezzed. Um, and, uh, and that's on top of all of the wonky AI and glitches and so forth. So it's really a mess. And we're talking about a game that is estimated to have cost $317 million, um, which is obviously comparable with some of the bigger Hollywood blockbuster movies. And would make more than most Hollywood blockbusters if everything was going perfect. Well, what's... Oh, yeah. I mean, the game had broken even or exceeded the cost to create it by the day it came out because 8 million pre-orders at the cost of, you know, $59.99 had already been made. Um, And so, you know, this is a very sound investment. I'm sure they slept a lot better at night than a lot of Hollywood studios do before releasing these mega blockbusters. But, um, you know, and this is something Patches and, and Dave and Katie could all, probably all speak to better than I could. But, like, there's all sorts of attendant issues here regarding crunch in the video game industry and, and similar to the way the movies work, putting the release date before the actual uh, product is ready. Even though in the case of Cyberpunk, they have delayed the release several times, um, but it still wasn't delayed enough. 
Uh, and, and so yeah, now it's not even available in the PlayStation store. Uh, it's, it's, it feels to me without digging deeper into this. And I would turn to Katie and, and Dave for any historical examples from our side, our neck of the woods. Um, it feels to me kind of unprecedented that something of this scale could dis- misfunction that badly. And at the same time, you know, there's room for this to turn around. There's an interesting Kotaku article the other day about how games have sort of become too big to fail. And a game like No Man's Sky, which actually was an indie or, or a game like Destiny or something like that can come out and be flawed. And then it just has a long enough runway where eventually through updates and patches and so forth, they can they can fix it to the point like Final Fantasy XIV was released and hey, and like Francis totally Ford remade. Coppola, look at know. Francis Ford Coppola. He just recut The Godfather 3. Yeah, it'll only take him He's 40 still years to fix it. Uh, is this uh, as if, yeah. like, Quibi had been something that, like, everyone really anticipated and then turned out to be Quibi? Is, like, that the equivalent? It would It would about? be, yeah. I mean, I think that's... I'm trying to think yes. of other recent debates. Uh, but it would be like if we all invested $60 in Quibi and thought that Quibi was going to be a masterpiece because Jeffrey yeah. Katzenberg's last project was um, this, this giant epochal event. And then when you download a Quibi, instead of, like, the only thing worse or maybe only not only just as bad as actually watching the quibi content that successfully loaded on our phones on launch day would be that if quibi just did not even launch as an app i will say quibi worked very well as an app uh even though it had nothing worth watching on it (laughs) what was like uh i I think i brought this up a couple of times before on the podcast do you guys remember that wrath of the titan screening Uh where the 3d wasn't Uh fixed we talk about this a lot that's like the yeah, that's like the closest thing I could think yeah, of I was because about the, that too. the technology was close to working, but the post conversion had just not been done correctly. So the things like grass was weird and depth seemed to be off. And if they had like released that as the only version of the movie, that would be like the best comparison I have for. Yeah. I think this, that's fair. And I mean, we have a recent example of this, maybe not from David's good point, which is like people were anticipating Cyberpunk. Like people are yeah. really wanted this to be good and really expected it to be good. And that feeling of betrayal, player. that feeling of yeah. betrayal is complicated by a sense of false advertisement because none of the screenshots or videos that were shown in the years and years and years of the, like... the release came from uh, anything other than the PC version of the game, effectively. They certainly didn't come from the PS4 and Xbox uh, yeah. 360 version of the game. It's like if the Avengers came out like Clash of the Titans. That that would be... Sorry, Katie. No, I, like, is that supposed to be, like, are they supposed to, like, show you, like, actual gameplay, or is it all just, like, rendering? It's not like they're they're under any sort of, like, I mean, who knows? It, it could become law <laughs> the way this is going. But uh, <laughs> given the, um, you know, the assumption was that the, the game would, I mean, we're all used to seeing, like, cutscenes, and they say, you know, this is not representative of the actual gameplay, and gamers sort of understand the difference, um, and don't hold it against the creators when playing Final Fantasy VII back in 1997 does not reflect the quality of the CGI, the FMV cutscenes, and so forth. But um, the disparity in the quality here is really the sticking point, where it looks like like a PS2 game when you play it on your PS4, and also does not work. Um, and then even on the PS5, doesn't look, you know, half as crisp as it did in a lot of the pre-release videos. So there is a sense of False advertising. It's comparable to me to like, you know, and this is a, a tactic I approve of, um, but A24's bait and switch sometimes with their F cinema score, uh, you know, night, the night comes, or what was that movie called? Here comes the night, the night, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, um, 
and and like The Witch and things like that, where they sort of bait and switch audiences. But this is to a much greater degree. Do we? Have Sorry, a- Patches. Patches was going. Go ahead, on ahead. I was just going to mention one infamous thing that has nothing to do with anticipation. Well, maybe it does. But Cats got a day a patch update. Um, yeah, it did get a patch. Days you're right. into mm-hmm. its release, the uh, the special effects were it not did. looking so good, and they tried to upgrade that shit right away. Um, which is didn't do I don't much. remember anything like that before. Uh, yeah, it certainly did not impact the legacy of cats. Um, and maybe it impacted the infamy of cats, but um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think I don't the thing to make cats like mostly bad or what they tried before. to do on purpose. Uh, yeah, Katie, what were you I was going to ask: do we do we feel Schadenfreude about this? Like, is this a company that like was kind of like <laughs> poised for a fall, like Quibi, or does it just feel bad? Oh, no, no, no. Well, they're no. only only as far as the, the crunch is concerned. I mean, apparently, and, and this has all come out, you know, over the last couple of days, um, they, and this is, you know, all too common in the video game industry. You see it even with the, you know, a lot of stories about Naughty Dog, who made my beloved The Last of Us, um, that the, the work conditions in the months leading up to the release of the game can be very, very, very difficult. Um we can talk about crunch another time because I think it's a little bit more complicated than we can give it credit for right here in this context. But uh, th- I-, I would say that it-, it was not just goodwill. The-, the water was a little muddied. But I mean, The Witcher 3, you have to understand, Katie, is highly regarded as a masterpiece. It's like, what if, yeah. what if they made, I don't know, Avatar? I was going to say Avatar, but people have soured a little bit on that. So the Avengers or something like that, like a masterpiece of blockbuster entertainment yeah and then this game comes out and just totally blows up in their faces i think people are astonished i mean people so maybe are it's like if marvel had videos. a fuck up on this level yeah yeah it is, it is like it'd be that. like if you saw the trailer for et and then you went to the movie and bought a ticket for et and you sat down and they started playing mac and me I was oh, reading I a New York Times article about this whole situation, and they uh, they tweeted a link to a meme where like it was the uh, Jurassic Park theme, like showing you the like yes. sample gameplay, oh, and yeah. then it cut to the like recorder version of the Jurassic Park. Theme. Yeah, I love that recorder version. Oh, I mean, that I, meme I gonna, makes me laugh was, in all contexts. I was laughing a bit, Katie, because when you were alluding to uh, Schadenfreude, I'm like, I thought you were going to say, should we have Schadenfreude as like movie people who are laughing oh, at games? Ha no. ha, no. games. Good. Look Take what that. games no. got you this time. Yeah. Come you back to cinema. You tried to be interactive. <laughs> <Yes>. Boom. <laughs> Linear narrative. Movie but industry is, is really that, flourishing like, right now. Fuck you, games. <laughs> people, the, the people who are most burned by this are also people who... And they're like, there's so many tangents to the story. You talk about the the reviews um, and the way that the, the reviews did not necessarily reflect the experience. And again, they were on the PC and on the consoles, but like they reflect the, one experience that's very yeah. But the, you know, there are all sorts of conversations about the the relationship between hype and uh, critical notices in video games and how it's uh, how it is that way. Not to get into like an ethics and gaming journalism conversation because oh I you know I have I have no uh, uh, I give no credence to the the Gamergate. Folks, but um, I mean, there's a lot of stories around this game that are interesting, uh, but I think the people who are most burned by it are the ones who are most committed to sticking with this and seeing it through in the because they want to play the version of this game that they've been waiting for for years and have in their heads. Yeah. And while I think, you know, I, I did not love The Witcher 3. Uh, it was not just when I was getting into open world games. I found that one a bit too cumbersome. I came late to it. But and, and there are all sorts of wonky systems, even when. Uh, Cyberpunk 2077 is running smoothly that I find annoying. Um, I still, the whole first person of it all even drives me a little batty. Um, but uh, I have 
like it really is the closest approximation I found to sort of wandering through a cyberpunk universe to, to you know, playing Blade Runner uh, or something to that effect. And the world or Ghost in the Shell is the thing that really comes to mind. And the world is alive enough and then drawn in and the story is, you know, overly complicated, but interesting. And it, it does, if it were just a little bit smoother, I can imagine having a lot more fun just sort of bumming around Night City than I would bumming around uh, any of the Grand Theft Auto cities. I mean, there's just a lot to see and take in and do, and there's potential there still. And I think, you know, as as souring as this experience was, there will be a lot of interest in seeing them turn it around. And so I don't think people want to cancel in any way, to use a loaded term, uh, CD Projekt Red, or at least, you know, not most people, but um, how they address this in 2021 a game that they may have thought was going to be a uh, um, a laurel for them to rest on in 2021, and they could all take very well earned vacation yeah. is uh, now across it, around their it neck. Could become one of the best games of 2021. It very well could be. We're all <laughs> complaining about our Christmases. Think about what those guys are going to do. Ugh. For our mini segment tonight, we're going to talk about a brand new film that's on Netflix right now. I feel like it's flying under the radar, and I don't know why. Maybe because it's been out for like three million. It's been out for like three Racism. days. Give it a little bit of time. Okay, all right. I mean, there's a lot going on, but Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is out on Netflix. It's directed by George C. Wolf, who is a playwright. He's a, he directs theater. He directs film. What are his other films? I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Did, oh, um, he has made... Did he do that one with the, the, the radio? Radio? <laughs> Not radio, no. <laughs> no, I don't remember. The one I, I with the I think he radio. did Knights in Rodance. I think I believe he did Knights in Rodance. He did Immortal Life of Henry Lax, which was an HBO movie. Uh, Mortal Life of Henry Alex is is a decent movie and just a fascinating story, and I'm grateful to that movie for bringing it to my attention. He did direct um, Nights in Death. Well done. Uh, he has adapted with uh, writer Ruben Santiago Hudson a play by the renowned playwright August Wilson. Um, this Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is part of the um, Pittsburgh cycle or um, the century cycle of, of plays that August Wilson did that he spent most of his career writing. I believe it's 10 plays total. Each one takes place in a different decade in the 20th century. Each one trying to kind of grapple with black identity, black experience uh, in a big way, black language and just black way of life. Um, and this film takes place in the 1920s in Chicago, oddly enough, one of the rare August Wilson plays not to take place in Pittsburgh, even though it's part of the Pittsburgh cycle, um, and focuses on a, on a real person, Ma Rainey, uh, the mother of blues, and her recording session uh, with a bunch of like backup musicians who are rehearsing in the basement, and they're recording their this song, uh, Black Bottom, to the Black Bottom Dance, and it's, it's really just chronicling this, I think it takes place entirely in... An afternoon. There's like it's a there's contained. like a brief prologue, but yeah, I think it's pretty much just one day. Um, and this is a this is a true like claustrophobic play turned into a movie. There are maybe like two or three main sets. It's a lot of dialogue, and that's what it should be. I mean, 
I think it's easy to dismiss movies that feel like plays so often. This does feel like, for a while, HBO was doing a ton of these types of movies. Um, and I believe they were going to make, Denzel Washington was going to make every August Wilson play into an HBO movie at some point. But I believe wow. that that plan has shifted because uh, Denzel did Fences and he produced this movie. I was digging into this. I'm like, mm-hmm. why did Denzel not direct this? Well, because he produced it for uh, George C. Wolf and he's about to do another one, The, the Piano Teacher. Um, and yeah, it's really a play and it's better off for it. Like it really is quite sensational in the way that it's navigating this suffocating space and the dialogue is crackling. This is Chadwick Boseman's last movie. He plays this trumpeter who wants to be an artist, who wants to break free of what black people are to the white recording industry, which is just like backup people who give them their music for the least amount of money possible and get the hell out of there. He wants to be an artist and he's bubbling up and he's overflowing. He's bursting at the seams and begging his other musicians to come join him on the like artistic side of this. Meanwhile, everyone else just wants to, you know, play Ma Rainey's music. Ma Rainey played by Viola Davis. Um, and how would how would we describe Viola Davis's portrayal of Ma Rainey in this movie? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say she's not an artist too. Like she is there, like pursuing the work that she wants to do. I think she's true. like definitely a little bit more commercially minded about it. And like one of the themes of the movie that comes in really at the end is how these like black artists who did try to achieve their artistic dreams was still get co-opted by the white music industry. Um, but Chadwick Boseman's character is definitely like he's, he's impulsive and he talks a lot and he kind of has, you can sense he's going to have a hard t- time fulfilling those dreams because of his um, impulsivity. Um, and yeah, there's a push pull between, between those characters as well. I don't know. I, I mean, I liked her as Ma Rainey. She's like in a fat suit and has a lot of makeup on and is a really big character. It is a departure from, you know, if you're white. I was thinking of Oprah Winfrey in The Butler. What? <laughs> no, no. It is a <laughs> much just... more measured performance than that. I mean, she does spend a lot of time like sweating in the corner and being like, ah, it's I mean, it's great. I liked Oprah and the Butler, too. Definitely the best part of the Butler. Um, but it's just it's a big performance. And all I could think of through this movie is like, I'd love to see this on stage. Uh, I'd love to see people bellowing into the sky and and just cranking this dialogue out on stage where we're in a giant volume and it's echoing through. I think the, I, 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 think I George, hate to. Yeah take the the plainness of it all to task but it's hard for me not to raise an eyebrow when you're saying that all this movie made you think about was how much you wanted to see it on stage and i have to think that if a film is making you feel that way that it is not succeeding on its merits as a film well i don't know if that's entirely true because i feel like it is it's capturing that theatrical sense for me certainly in the performance, the musical performances, I think, get there. There are monologues from Chadwick and some of the other actors that I feel like, I, uh, in the way that Hamilton succeeded in this earlier this year, I'm like, I like that the camera could be up there and see the sweaty, hot day. Like, you do gain something from the film adaptation here. I just think at a certain point, um, I, I, want the, I, want a, I want the breathing room of the stage, that uh, actual size rehearsal room, can't give me maybe that's what i'm looking for hmm. but sometimes uh, when we can be up that close to chadwick boseman screaming to god that he like help him out like that is where the movie succeeds can i just take uh, one moment to celebrate hopefully together with you all coleman domingo who yeah, is not him. not getting any accolades for this movie because you know he's he's 
definitely he's not the lead part. He's not one of the lead parts. Uh, Chadwick Boseman is more than deserving of the attention that's coming his way. Ditto Viola Davis um, and the rest of the cast. But I just, I'm going, I've always been a fan of Coldman Domingo. He has never shown up in anything where I, I don't think it's been improved for him being there uh, or hasn't been improved rather by him being there. Um, he's devoted a lot of his time recently to being behind the camera on Fear the Walking Dead, which is a show I have never seen so much as a frame of and don't have any <laughs> intention of changing Wait, that. you say behind the camera, he's, no, he's on. He's directed he's, it. Oh, oh wow. Okay. Yeah. And he's on. Um, he may, I assume he's also on it. He's I, a theater I guy too. I would uh, actually implore people to see him in another film play, Passing Strange, that Spike Lee directed years ago. This I actually saw Coleman Domingo on stage do that part. And that movie transcends. That movie is just a filmed version of, of the stage play. But Coleman like, Domingo was incredible on stage and is amazing in that movie. He's Definitely. also in The Butler. He's also in The Butler. Um, hey! Uh, and he's in, you know, The Birth of a Nation, The Assassination Nation, and a couple of other movies I don't like, and a couple of movies I love, like If Beale Street Could Talk. And he's amazing in Zola, which is coming out next summer. But oh uh, I don't really watch Euphoria, something we've talked about on the show, but I did see the one-off, or one of the two special episodes, the only one they've aired thus far, uh, which is just he and Zendaya sitting in a uh, diner and talking, and he's talking at length about his uh, struggles with addiction, he's her sponsor, and it is just such a masterclass of uh, performance and just like so enraptured, and I found myself so deeply invested in these two characters and his in particular in a way that the eight episodes of Euphoria that I half watched uh, did not really click for me. And I just, uh, you know, he shows up and he says, I wanted to, and you know what to do. And I was just sort of all in <laughs> on those scenes here in Ma Rainey. But on, on the flip side of that, um, I had a big problem with Ma Rainey, um, apart from all of its virtues as a text, which is that it looks atrocious. I mean, like truly hideous. Uh, it is... A, a victim, a fatal victim, if you ask me, of the Netflix gloss that is sort of painted on so many of their movies, whether because of how they're output to the platform or because of the strictures of how they insist they be shot. Um, and it's just such a poor fit and so poorly handled for for a movie that takes place in 1930s Chicago. Uh, the CG of the exterior shots of the bustling Chicago that is uh, pops right off the screen because it all looks so plastic. Um, I, I, I'm glad that it's not just sort of dour and gritty and that it allows... I was about these... to say, what about the quality of it? That... No, it's like I love, I, I, I like that they didn't go too far in that other direction, that they just didn't, you know, that they found some real pop and, and life in the images, but it's the nature of that that brightness. It's the oversaturation. It's just, it all feels like very a saturated. It's very yeah. contrasty. There's um, vignetting on every frame of this movie for some reason. Uh I don't know. It's 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 sweaty. I like the close-ups of the <laughs> of the thing that records the record. I like it. Yeah, those brass rings. What is what the brass? Yeah, and the, like the weights, and then like just the idea that they have to carve the music into an actual like plastic disc is like it's so so stressful. Like there's so much weighing on that. I like that part. I'm learning now that uh, and no disrespect, cinematography, uh, one uh, an art form I have an endless amount of respect for, um, mostly because I don't. Uh, understand the craft involved um but tobias a schleichler is a cinematographer and he has spent a lot of the last 10 years plus 15 20th 21st century really as uh bill condon's guy and also working with peter berg but it's really the bill condon shimmer that he um carries right over from beauty and the beast and i guess even the likes of dream girls before that uh to this and uh 
man, it just it doesn't uh, for Dreamgirls all the, the glitz of of that show. I thought that it, it makes sense why the movie looks the way that it does. But um, Spencer Confidential boy, I guess when Peter Berg calls and you've made however many movies with him, you can't say no. Uh, but yeah, this is this is uh, and this uh, this is not unique to this movie. I mean, like so many Netflix originals look like this. Um, it's not it's not unrelated from my beef with uh, shooting Mank on digital just so Fincher could exert absolute control. Um, Man, week after week, we're finding ways guy. to talk about cinematography on Netflix. <laughs> Katie, what what is your take on my I like my rating. I like I found it uh, like a play, and I oh, I think I have a hard time being. Like, I've seen arguments being like, but that is the virtue that it sticks with the text and. I think that's part of it. I mean, what you said about like being able to see Chopic Boseman's performance close up, I think is really valuable. Um, I, you know, he's going to win an Oscar for this and it's going to be like partly because it is a posthumous Oscar and it, like there was a terrible shock to his death, but also I think he really deserves it. And it's, it's the kind of performance that you see and you realize how much he had to give, even though you can kind of see how sick he was when you see this, like he's really thin and, you know, not to like read too much into it, but it feels like you can see it. Um, and I'm glad it exists as kind of a capsule for him, maybe more than the movie as a capsule of the play itself. He's he's roaring in this he's movie. He's so I good. I don't, I don't see him like lagging behind anybody or. or... Oh God, no. Oh, in terms of th- in he's... terms of thinking, he seems sick. Of what I said. Oh yeah, no, yeah, just yeah. he seems so thin. Like you just you just oh, see yeah. the transformation in his body. I think. Man, the dialogue in this movie is, and and in all August Wilson plays. Um, you know, I, I had not seen this staged ever. I saw uh, Gem of the Ocean once with Felicia Rashad on stage mm. being playing a 230-some-year-old woman. And some of August Wilson plays have, like, a really supernatural element, and they feel really connected to, like, the long history of, of black people in America. This one feels even more contained. I wasn't familiar with the text. But um, when it starts becoming, like, everyone's summoning their inner fire in this movie. And, and that's enough for me sometimes. I, I'm pretty starved for, like, meaty performances. Yeah. And I'm not sure you're going to find a movie with better dialogue than an August Wilson play as a movie, unfortunately. I wish we got more movies with, like, striking dialogue like this. Like, it had a cinematic element, too. But, oh, well. <laughs> Um, okay, so for segment three tonight, we're going to talk about Steve McQueen's small axe, uh, and mostly we're going to try to figure out what it is and if that matters. We will uh, solve it finally. Yes, um, <laughs> we have been duly appointed, content. duly appointed federal marshals <laughs> to. Uh, Figure this one out once and for all. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it, we'll get there. But Steve, uh, um, uh, Small Axe is a anthology of five films or a series or both, depending on what Amazon graphic you're looking at, made by Steve McQueen. Uh, they've been percolating for a long time for with him uh, behind the scenes about life uh, in the Black West Indian community in London between the early 1960s and uh, 1980. Um which is when Lover's Rock takes place. And uh, two of the films were set to premiere at Cannes, which were Mangrove and Lover's Rock. 
and uh, that never happened. And then three of them ended up playing at the New York Film Festival. Uh, the other one being Red, White, and Blue, starring John Boyega as a black cop in a uh, overwhelmingly racist area. And the obviously, you know, it, it was timely then and is uh, timely now. Um, and asking questions about police reform and its possibility. Uh, but these five films are... Um, you know, they, they are a wonderful, none of them have anything to do with one another explicitly. They're not, you know, shared characters. This is not uh, your Damon Lindelof school of everything is connected storytelling, but they do co- combine together to create a collage of a, a community of, of a combine together time. to form Voltron. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I mean, it's not even like the Kuschlovsky red, white, and blue, where you think that they don't necessarily overlap. And then at the end uh, of the last five minutes of education, Spoilers. they all bend back around. But um, the uh, but they they're all radically different films. They are um, all fascinating. Uh, it's telling, and you're always sort of uh, putting your thumb on the scale in a case like this. Not always. I mean, this is kind of unprecedented. But when some of the episodes or installments are programmed at the world's most prestigious film festivals, and the other are just saved for uh, Amazon Prime, um, and uh, um, there's definitely a, a greater emphasis in terms of the the formal daring and the sort of immediacy that you see in something like Mangrove, which is the longest chapter and is um, the antidote to trial of Chicago seven. It is an interesting counterpoint. No, it's the antidote to (laughs) a a truly sick movie. Um, And uh, Mangrove, I mean, I, I, Mangrove is everything that I, uh, everything I love about Mangrove is sort of the antithesis of what I didn't like about trial of Chicago seven. We can, have a conversation later. Uh, but it, it, that is one hell of a courtroom drama. Lover's Rock, which is maybe the lion's share of the praise, is a 68-minute uh, film which entirely takes place over the span of one night um, at a dance party in Notting Hill where uh, a bunch of black people, predominantly young, but there's also some older people there as well, are able to sort of enjoy themselves and fraternize away from the uh, watchful eyes of white uh, Britannia that are policing them all day long. Um, and Red, White, and Blue is a said John Boyega plays a cop, and the other two are Alex Whedon and uh, Education, um, which are both worth checking out as well, but may not have fared quite as well on their own and understands why they came out the way they did. Uh, it is a massive project. Um, I'm still not entirely sure of the logistics involved. I know they share the same cinematographer because the New York Film Critics Circle, of which I'm a member, uh, recently awarded them the uh, the award for all five films. Um for best cinematography, and uh, but I'm not sure if they were shot uh, all at once, sort of uh, Lord of the Rings style. Or oh my god, that would, be, that would be crazy. They all have it would be casts. crazy, wouldn't it? I mean, as I say it out loud, it sounds nuts, but who knows? Um, but it, it is a really magnificent achievement, and um, I so much of the conversation around it has inevitably because we all have our heads up our own asses and need to decide what everything is before we sort of dig into the nitty gritty of you know how it is about the thing. Um, that the conversation has been around whether it's a a movie or series of movies or a TV show. Um, That last option, whether it's one film, has really only been introduced as a possibility uh, yesterday when the Los Angeles Film Critics awarded the Best Picture, not Best Pictures, award of the year to Small Axe as a complete thing, as a single body of work. Um, There's, you know, Steve McQueen has has gotten out in front of this and said, 
you know, to him, it's a, it's an anthology of five films, but also um, he gave the answer that you would want him to give, which is that he really doesn't give a shit. Uh, and his mom, he really sure. just wanted his mom to see them on the BBC and he got his wish. Uh, and, <laughs> um, and that's kind of where we stand. And I'll open the floor to talk about sort of the merits of these films, which uh, I have been really blown away by. Um, Red, White, and Blue is a fantastic character piece, uh, as is Alex Whedon, but I think uh, um, the other two, Lover's Rock and Mangrove, are really the the more sort of staggering installments. Um, I want to hear powerful. from Dave. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I really enjoy looking into, you know, cultures that I don't uh, understand as deeply. Uh, so a lot of times those are American cultures, you know, there's a little bit of uh, shame involved in being around something I didn't care to understand. But here I got a little bit of a reprieve from guilt as that's uh, not part of the culture that uh, I've been physically around any part of my life. So that was, I absolutely agree that Mangrove plays as a trial of Chicago 7, but one where you actually can track what's going on because even it's not about the court case which is uh, very nice of it. Uh, I also got to see Lover's Rock, which I enjoyed, but I think that one might work better as like a single film or an experience because I have trouble holding on to... Like, if I were to give you a plot description of Lover's Rock, it probably wouldn't be great or long um, because so much of that is based on like the music and the mood and the way the camera sort of floats through this party. It, it does have what, for my money, might be the great film scene of the year. And anyone who's seen the movie immediately knows exactly what I'm talking about, uh, which is the, you know, it's a 68-minute film. And there's a 10-minute sequence in the middle of it scored to Janet Kaye's Silly Games. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it, there's just such an ecstatic rendering of the mood. The, house, the party's so hot that the house itself is starting to sweat. And once the, the song ends, everybody who's dancing sort of refuses to, to let it be over and continues singing along for another, you know, longer than the duration of the song. You're carrying the scene to 10 minutes um, with some of the women hitting that, that same falsetto, trying to beat the glass shattering falsetto that, that Janet Kay uh, had at the end of the song. And it's just a remarkably transportive moment. And also, it's Alex Weedle, not Alex Whedon, which I knew in the back of my well, head. We three fucking times. I mean, the thing about Lover's uh, Rock that feels so obvious to say, but like for everyone watching it inside their house when no one has been to a house party like that in months and probably won't go for months, like the timing is outrageous. It, not, I don't know if anything has made me nostalgic for people the way that that movie did. Even Well, there's that and then Mangrove. If we're going to talk about them all as a piece, which I think versus TV or series of films, you kind of, it, they want, we're supposed to, so I think about them like that. <clears throat> um, like Mangrove and Lover's Rock have this like joyous heart of the community that is then sort of interrogated in Red, White, and Blue because of the nature of what that story is telling. And then Mangrove and Red, White, and Blue, these are the three that I've seen, which is why I'm going to bring them up. Um, are based on true stories, whereas Lover's Rock is sort of the fantasy that we need uh, to get uh, certain parts of that it's, community it's across. It's the only fictional, uh, purely fictional installment. Oh, interesting. Well, there you go. Either way, I really, like, it's not that I didn't like Lover's Rock, but I really enjoy how uh, Mangrove and Red, White, and Blue don't shy away from the tough conversations or people making uh, tough decisions, whether it's about like organizing uh, 
uh, as like Black Panthers or, you know, trying to reform the police system uh, in a period piece when, you know, we know currently what the state of uh, policing and race is. So watching, you know, the John Boyega's character, as David described as kind of a character piece, him sort of grapple with, you know, uh, can you have even hope to change like these huge systems? Those movies, uh, the people fighting the system really worked for me better than the the joyous culture. Uh, but I do think Dave, that this all is of not those... surprising me at all. Giving your personality, no, no, not at all. <laughs> but I think that's the good point of why uh, something like a series of films should be a more useful concept to people than just like it's released on like a weekly schedule and it's long term long form storytelling so it's television like i think that the idea of um non-serialized like chapter storytelling is really interesting because it forces you to put these films in conversation with each other in which case lovers rock is like so much fun but obviously the odd one out so you kind of carry i don't know what it is you carry the knowledge of the injustices of that community with you into the next movie, mm-hmm. which is yeah. as 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 well as you can give a history lesson, I think, in culture through art is something like that, where it's not you're not supposed to remember which character or which actor, but sort of like the overall tone of the film carries over to the next. You're, film. you're adding weight to a scale. Every movie mm-hmm. is like adding a different weight to something and it, it all keeps sinking down well, it's a- interesting that oh sorry Katie, i was just gonna say that it's it's mangrove is you know as far as it matters it is technically the first episode in the in the series but lover's rock was the first one that was unveiled to the world or critics anyway um and i think to, to dovetail with what dave was saying i think seeing even though it's it's set i believe chronologically after any of the other films seeing just the, the joy in this community makes watching Mangrove immediately afterwards all the more wrenching. Yeah. Uh, as that community, mm-hmm. you know, at a slightly different point in time is dismantled. Well, there's this moment doesn't in... doesn't it feel uh, like more of a breath? Oh, yeah, sorry. There's this moment in Lover's Rock where the bouncer is there, like, trying to keep this guy from being an asshole, and then he basically yanks him inside the party, even though he doesn't want him there, because the worst alternative is to have the cops notice it. And then you see Mangrove, right. which is about the cops paying this undue attention to a, a restaurant. You, like... Just a knowing that Lover's Rock happens after, so that that kind of police attention continues on long after the events of Mangrove. But also, it just it's giving it to you in such a quotidian context that when you see this really extreme version of it in Mangrove, you get why it wasn't just this restaurant, it wasn't just these people. It was like a systemic thing that all of the people in the society faced. And right, that's why it. I, I, it's hard to imagine watching Lover's Rock first. It is you, weird. You want that? You want that to kind of haunt the the rims, right? Like everyone's going inside to have a big party and closing off from this world that we've seen in the other movies that can be scary and then can be violent. But that's, that's present in lover's rock as well. I mean, the threat of um, the, you know, the outside world, the white establishment to these characters is it's on the fringes of lover's rock in a way that it's sort of the heart of mangrove. um, But it's definitely there. Yeah. Um, It's definitely there. But I also like mangrove is a lover's rock. is like a pure directorial flex. And uh, every one of those 68 minutes is, is Steve McQueen just sort of doing his thing. But Why don't we see more movies like this? It doesn't, isn't it confusing? Like, I see a lot of people being like, there's just nothing like this. And 
in this age where anyone can get a camera and like go out and do stuff. I'm surprised that you don't see more movies that are like, this movie's just a big party or this movie's just a big conversation. Because if you're not a good filmmaker, it's really boring. Like you, there's just so many ways that if you don't have control over your camera and know exactly when to introduce a character and when to make it just a group, like I think you have to really, I mean like everybody wants some is kind of the closest version I can think of it. And that has a bazillion times more plot than Lover's Rock. Right. And also did not do particularly well. Like the challenge of packaging these movies is a challenge. I mean, Steve McQueen, who won an Oscar, did he win for Best Director? I mean, I no, know. he won no, Best no. Picture. But um, yeah, he's everyone knows that he directed Twelve Years a Slave, mm-hmm. um, in addition to uh, 2018's most successful film, Widows, yes. and or is that 2019? 2019? No, 2018, highest grossing film of the year, though. Everybody knows. Yeah, um, of course. And uh, I think I picked it, two Steve McQueen movies as my number ones. He's, he's a great filmmaker. Shame and, and uh, I can't quite get there with Shame, even though I I love parts of it. But uh, Hunger is really incredible um but i think you know like he it's hard for me to imagine him as small and contained as lover's rock is being able to put that in the world on a large scale that draw the attention to it that it deserves if not for its place in this greater package of films i mean even he yeah. i think had to find a context for it um it's hard but it, something like mangrove which offers ostensibly fewer opportunities for him to sort of Put his his hand, you know, make his eye clear and 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 really bend the world to his will and see it through his eyes uh, is still rife with moments that feel indivisibly his, um, and they happen in in simple everyday situations that really, even more than something like Lovers Rock, make you think, why don't more filmmakers do this? These small inflections and flourishes that allow life to seep in to this story and make it feel so much more dynamic than your average courtroom drama. And the one that sticks out, I think, with me and, and so many of the people who have seen this movie is when there's a raid on the Mangrove restaurant um, and the camera just lingers behind after the police sweep through mm-hmm. uh, and sort of callously and cruelly remove everyone from the place. And there's just a, a, like a pot in a ladle on the floor of the, the of the kitchen, just clanging back and forth. And the camera holds for, you know, it feels like a short eternity, a minute at the most, but, um, and you just sort of are left with the weight of what happens, how full that room was just a, a minute ago versus, you know, the, the current of hate that sort of swept through it in the time in between. It's, it's really viscerally powerful. Yeah. And then I think the, the, the reason Lover's Rock is going to work is that it is um, an act you could place anywhere, I think. Or at least I've only seen three, but I'm guessing with like four and five, if they're going somewhat chronologically and you're saying it ends in the 80s. I feel like I could, you could put Lover's Rock anywhere and still kind of get the point. The The idea sort of the series that's inherited its title is, you know, if you're the big tree, we're the small axe. And you really come along with that, I think, after the film experience, because there are moments of triumph and celebration, but I think the films are very aware they're being presented in a time after all of that, where the progress isn't as apparent as you think it would be telling stories over this period of time. Like if if they've been having this trouble uh, with the police for this long, you know, you think they'd get to it by now, but they haven't. Instead, it's just like this small grinding away at a large problem. And so I really think it works. People who want to say it's a TV series, I don't want to see a second season of Small Axe because like 
it's it's not that sort of like like story. I, I mean, maybe to pivot the conversation slightly and take us out eventually. Uh, doesn't matter. Like on one hand, it's all semantics and it's award season mumbo jumbo, and we have to figure out like what small axe is. But I did wonder, without having an answer, if it matters what small axe is in the like cosmos of streaming's future and movies and tv and it's all swirling together um what sucks the most about small acts is that the i feel like the rollout on amazon was atrocious and that people have absolutely no idea that these movies are on the platform they're not highlighted in any way they don't feel presented with any fanfare and it just sucks won the lafka prize in spite of amazon it feels Hmm. yeah um so yeah does it matter what small acts is in any continuum? it only it i i was I, I was a little bit left scratched my head because the the los angeles film critics thing only because calling one like that was like a whole new wrinkle in this in this debate that small acts was actually one film <laughs> and the options prior to that being that it was a tv show versus an anthology of five films and that was some real galaxy brain thinking and i was like all right well i guess anything could be anything um but uh it only as we said at the top of the segment, does it really matter? No, of course not. It only matters insofar, and this is a subject we've talked about and will continually revisit on the show, as the award season narrative is now only useful for the attention it can shine on particular works of art and uh, save them from the sort of maw of streaming content. Uh, it's really, it's our only opportunity on a consistent basis to get smart sophisticated artistically driven storytelling for adults and mainstream platforms um and we need to make the most of it every year which is part of why parasite and that's whole run was was so uh, affirming um the small act the praise to small acts if people do consider it uh a tv show i mean like no in this particular instance it doesn't matter and i also don't think it sets much of a precedent because Although i think more people would watch it if they thought it was a tv show hmm. it, it, that could be true um i think you know there are a lot of jokes about then like, oh, well, then Twin Peaks, the return, the perennial example of this shit should should have won Best Film. I don't really think, you know, even to Jess, the precedent applies because is there going to be another film series next year where, where another major filmmaker makes five films so. in the span of a single year? Which, by the way, even if they're all sort of bundled together and, and shot with the same crew, it's a pretty fucking major Don't you hope Steven Soderbergh takes this as a challenge? Like, he's the one who Steven I would Soderbergh, think... Steven Soderbergh, get your lazy fucking ass I mean, off the couch. he's the one I could think of who'd be Pick like, Pick up your yeah. iPhone and make a sequel to High Flying Bird. Come on. Um, yeah, I mean, this is... It's... I just don't think that this is going to come up again in terms of awards on a regular enough basis for people to really get pressed about it. I don't know if it's all that related to the conversation between, you know, what is film and TV. Um, Can it win Oscars or is it? Well, that's up to Amazon. I mean, like they've. No, it can't. It's yeah. It's Amazon chose to make it Emmy eligible. Is that reversible now that it's won these major (laughs) film prizes? I don't think it's like a a legally binding thing. Yeah. I don't see why not. I don't, I think they would have to pick one. And I think like my understanding was that Steve McQueen was very adamant that they were a whole. So if they were like to just promote, mangrove for oscars and that would piss steve mcqueen off and i don't know i don't know if anybody sees any sees the value in that going that far but maybe they do now uh can i share a fun fact before we wrap this up and get off uh, so the baby in mangrove uh of the two activists do you guys know who he grows up to be 
Like in real life? Yeah. How could you? Uh, he is the president of Island Records right now. He signed Amy Winehouse and Florence and the Machine well, uh, to real major life, label deals. He's, he's, he's still a baby. In real life, he's, he's like still a baby. Year, he's like one and a half years In real life, he's still a baby. In, uh, in history, <laughs> he is Darkest Beast, <laughs> who is now a big deal in the music industry. Well, that's... Aww. Isn't that nice? That, that is cool. very exciting. Um that baby was real close to a printing press that got raided and it made me scared. They're fighting Alex so Weedle, hard to give that name, baby a good life, and he has a great life. Uh, they did Alex it. Alex Weedle, whose name I butchered at the top of the segment, also went on to have a fascinating adulthood, which is uh, mentioned briefly in a postscript in that film. Um, yeah, I, I uh, man, there was something I was going to say about these movies and it uh, falling into one category or the other. I do no, I just think that like mostly it like all of these conversation reflects back on us as critics our need to taxonomize things uh, to, to decide what things are so that we are comfortable with having them obviously we're in a moment of extreme flux right now where long foreseen changes have been ushered in violently and faster than um the industry the people on our side of the fence the economy was able to accommodate um and the fallout will be really interesting and possibly very terrible in all respects, but, uh, you know, I think Steve McQueen has the right attitude here and whatever, whatever accolades small X needs to get for a wider audience to see it and for Amazon to maybe put a little bit more love behind this, uh, or something of this caliber the next time they have it would be great. You can watch all small X now, right? All five are available. Yes. Okay. Yep. We all got some catching up to do. Uh, that does it for this week's show. I believe we're going to take next week off because it's uh, the week between Christmas and New Year's. Historically, an off season for many people. Uh, we would normally be running our top tens right about now. We're not doing that yet uh, because many things have been postponed and it gives us more time to watch movies. We will be doing them eventually, though, in case anyone is worried. Um, so probably we'll have a patch one update yeah. on the podcast. Comedy. They want patches. Should I should I quietly repost the lost episode next week? Sure. Yes. Then nobody wait. will notice that we're not canceled. What's the law? Lo- the lost one that episode? where Dave and uh, Patches canceled the podcast. Oh wait, last no, time. I thought no, no. I thought you meant the I lost episode where we talk about lost. You could do that. Oh. You could do that one. That's <laughs> a lost TV episode. There is that one. That one's a whole a whole website experience at fightingtheworm.com slash I lost the film. Uh, stressful for listeners. Anyway, people do not need the last thing in 2020 <laughs> to be a replay of the horrible episode. <laughs> uh, well, we'll be back in January and a new year with hopefully many brighter things ahead for all of us. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches and we have a website where you can listen to the episodes. They go way far back. Except you can't listen to that one episode. Memory hold. <laughs> Uh, I am David Ehrlich. You can find me on the streets of Night City and also on Twitter at David Ehrlich. And also with all my best buds on Fighting in the War Room on iTunes. Fighting in the War Room. It's what's for dinner. (laughs) I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA7E. You can also listen to The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast where we'll be watching the TV show Lost. We're finishing up season four. Here at the end of twenty twenty. Wow. Not wow. much left. No. We'll finish next year. Oh yeah, we got we know the end date now. Wow. Uh I've only been on once. What the hell? Yeah, same. 
Same. Well, you were the child got abducted, and uh, you were on a parenting episode. So maybe you didn't you didn't leave the door open for your sequel as easily as some other people. Wow. But, but come back, Patches. Blame me. Come back, season five. You know what season five is. I don't want to say it now because I don't want to spoil people. But you know what season five is. All right. To be continued in 2021. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com. On the Little Goldman podcast, uh, this week we're talking about Christmas movies with Bobby Finger and Lindsay Weber of Who Weekly. So crossover episode for some people, I'm sure. Um, and you can find me on Twitter uh, at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R where you can lobby for Patches to be on Dave's podcast, or you can answer this week's second round question, which is... It's the holidays and you're at home. What movies are you using to feel better this season? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Uh, not next week, Happy next year! Happy New Year! Yeah, next year! Happy New Year! Stay inside.